from the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Will you pray with me? High King of heaven, you sit upon your throne in glory and in splendor, and you rule, you reign, and you preserve this creation that we call home. But we would love to acknowledge you in greater ways to display your righteousness in this world. Would you anoint my brother, Pastor Daniel, this morning with power and conviction to open your word and to convey to us the hope that it is to live by faith? For we know righteousness comes by faith, and it is a gift given to us. So will you equip him, and will you open our hearts, removing the burdens, um, the roadblocks that would prevent us from receiving your grace this morning? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors here. I'm usually having the opportunity to lead worship. Can we just give a round of applause to the worship team and Brad this morning who's leading? They get here early and they work hard and it is a blessing to hear you all sing with them. We are in the middle of a series called Shepherd, Poet, Fugitive, King, The Life of David, but we haven't talked about David at all yet. And we're not going to talk about him today. Um, We're going to be in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. And I couldn't think of a really interesting uh, initial opening. So I'm just going to ask that you give me your attention anyway, instead of having to do one of those cool (laughs) illustrations that grabs it. But we've been talking about the life of Saul, of King Saul. And Saul has had a lackluster run as king. We're going to kind of run through some context, and in that we're going to look at his highlights as king so far. So first, he was very tall. He was not a good herdsman. He had a mystical experience where he prophesied one time. He is mildly cowardly. And he's had a moderate military victory against the Ammonites. So this is a mediocre start, to be sure. And last we saw Saul, he was busy making excuses for why he needed to transgress the commandment of the Lord by offering unlicensed sacrifices. And when he's confronted by Samuel in chapter 13, he gives a, but seriously, bro, the situation was different. I had to do this. (laughs) And when Samuel informs him that because of his unrepentant impatience and disobedience, he has now forfeited the monarchy. And although that ultimately leads to a good king, In King David, there is an element of tragedy to that because we're going to see today that his son Jonathan was filled with kingly virtue. Saul's shenanigans from last week reveal that part of Saul's great failing, a big part of it, but part of Saul's great failing was putting his hopes in the sacrificial ritual, in the religion 
part of things and not the God who instituted the sacrifice, who instituted the religion. Saul was looking to the religious act as a means of currying God's favor. And at the end of chapter 13, Israel remains under Philistine oppression. Saul's efforts to counter them have yielded very limited success. The, the uh, army of Israel has started to desert. The ones that stick around kind of go hide out in caves and hills and places like that. Some have even gone over to the Philistine side. And now from a worldly perspective, this fear, this, this, this cowardliness makes sense. The, is, the Israelites are under-equipped and undermanned. And the Philistine garrison has now taken this strategically vital pass in the rocky terrain around a place called Michmash. And this is where we pick up the story and where we will see the difference between Saul's desperate ritualism, his legalism, and his son Jonathan's courageous faith. Here in chapter 14, the oppressors of God's people will be defeated. And although Saul is the king of God's people, Jonathan is the real deliverer of God's people. And the contrast of the two characters and their actions actually clarifies the main point of this passage, which is in the kingdom of God, faith triumphs over legalism. In the kingdom of God, bold faith triumphs over arrogant legalism. Now, as good Protestants who believe that justification is by grace through faith in Christ alone and not in the works of the law, we all high-five Martin Luther, pound our Bibles, and say amen, right? No one in this room would consider themselves a legalist. And we're quick to scorn the disgraced Saul and applaud the noble Jonathan. And as we will see, the text certainly gives us license to do that, but do not be too quick to identify with Jonathan, though he is a model of Christian bravery. There is lurking in all of us something of a Saul, and we would be foolish not to recognize it, and we would be more foolish still not to repent of it, and even more foolish to not crucify it day by day. So how does bold faith triumph over legalism, both in this story and in our own lives? Well, first, we see that bold faith confounds the enemy. Bold faith confounds the enemy. We're going to start reading in 1 Samuel 14, verse 1. That same day, Saul's son Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Interesting note, however, he did not tell his father. Jumping to verse 4, it says there are, were sharp columns of rock on both sides of the path, path that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine garrison. We're going to move to verse 6. Jonathan said to the attendant who carried his weapons, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. His armor bearer responded, do what is in your heart. Go ahead. I am completely with you. All right, Jonathan replied. 
We'll cross over to the men and then let them see us. If they say, wait until we reach you, wait until we come down to you, then we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go up because the Lord has handed, the Philistine, handed them over to us. That will be our sign. So they let themselves be seen by the Philistine garrison and the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've been hiding. The men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up and we'll teach you a lesson. They said, follow me, Jonathan told his armor bearer, for the Lord has handed them over to Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet and with his armor bearer behind him. And Jonathan cut down, cut them down. And his armor bearer followed and finished them off In the first assault, Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down about 20 men in a half-acre field. What a story, right? A daring raid by two impetuous young young men. And they head down into the canyon in front of the Philistines. They go right down into what could be easily called the kill zone. The Philistines could simply shoot arrows or throw spears or roll rocks down on them. But despite this, they made sure to be seen. And this boldness seems to dismantle the enemy's sense of self-preservation. Maybe they thought Jonathan and his armor bearer were cowardly deserters, or maybe they just thought it would be more fun to watch these two get killed up close, but they certainly had no fear of them. And they called them up. They even gave them safe passage while climbing up the rocky incline to the watchman's camp. And in the blink of an eye, rather than two quickly dispatched Israelites, an entire watchman's outpost, nearly two dozen Philistines lay dead on the ground. Movies are made about missions like this. And what inspired this special operation? It wasn't some new piece of military intelligence that they'd received. It wasn't divine revelation that had come to Jonathan. Jonathan hadn't received a message that the Philistines were manning this particular station with all the dummies of the army. No, look what it says in verse 6. Come on. Let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps the Lord will help us because nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It was faith. Faith that the God of Israel was all that he claimed to be and would do all that he said he would. The word perhaps is not a word of certainty or of arrogance. It is a word of hope. Jonathan was convinced that he was not only engaged in a physical war, he was engaged in a spiritual battle against those powers and principalities which defied Yahweh. And that those powers, however seemingly strong they were, could not prevail against the one true God. And by identifying them as uncircumcised men, he is pointing out that they are not only in opposition to the people of God, the people of Israel, but to the God of Israel. And this account has echoes of what will happen just three chapters from now. When another impetuous young man confronts another 
superior Philistine fighting force who are stationed on another hill, all while pointing out their defiance to the living God is evidenced by their uncircumcision. And that young man will also be shockingly successful in his confrontation as well. You see, there is a reason that such a deep bond formed between Jonathan and King David. They are brothers of the same courageous faith. And look at the outcome of this bold faith. The outcome is that the enemy is confounded. The enemy is confounded. Read in in verse 15. It says, Terror spread through the Philistine camp and the open fields to all the troops. Even the garrison, even the main fighting force and the raiding parties were terrified. The earth shook and terror spread from God. When Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, they saw the panicking troops scattering in every direction. We're going to jump to verse 20. Saul and all the troops with him assembled and marched to the battle, and there the Philistines were, fighting against each other in great confusion. There were Hebrews from the area who had gone earlier into the camp to join the Philistines, but even they joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the Israelite men who had been hiding in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they also joined Saul and Jonathan in battle. And so the Lord saved Israel that day. The bold faith of Jonathan. The bold faith of Jonathan and later the bold faith of David And later, the bold faith of Jehoshaphat and Ezra and Nehemiah and ultimately Christ all served to defeat the enemies of God, dispatching them in chaos and confusion. But while Jonathan's boldness is busy confounding the enemy, we see something very different from our boy Saul. Saul leans into his sinful disobedience from chapter 13. He leans into his arrogance and his formulaic superstitions, these legalistic human attempts to ensure Yahweh's blessing. And we see where bold faith confounds the enemy, arrogant legalism confounds the people. Where bold faith confounds the enemy, arrogant Legalism confounds the people of God. So just a heads up, from here through the end of the chapter, there's a lot going on. And I'm going to summarize certain parts of the passage and read certain parts of the passage, but you should go and read it all for yourself to make sure that I am not just making stuff up, okay? So while Jonathan is off being a total stud, what is happening with his father Saul? In verse 2 of this chapter, it says, Saul was staying under the pomegranate tree in Migron on the outskirts of Gibeah. The troops with him numbered about 600. So Jonathan's off with one. Saul's sitting around with 600. Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod, was also there. That's a priestly garment. He was the son of Ahitub, the brother of Ichabod, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest, at Shiloh. So as the enemies of God were fortifying their position around the pass in Michmash, Saul was busy sitting beneath a pomegranate tree. 
with a man named Ahijah, an apparent priest. He's decked out with an ephod and everything. And we think maybe Saul is making progress, right? After being rebuked by Samuel, Saul is getting his spiritual act together. He's surrounding himself with holy folks. And certainly with a priest on hand, he won't need to offer a sacrifice himself, right? The only problem is that Ahijah is from the rejected line of priests. His brother, his, it's his uncle probably, I, the reading's weird. His uncle Ichabod literally means, the name means the glory has departed. The glory has departed from, from the, the household of, this, of these priests. So, the rejected king is sitting with a rejected priest in a place of relative luxury while his son slips off and goes to war with the enemy. It's not a great picture. But upon seeing the enemy camp thrown into chaos, the literal terror of God being rained down on the Philistines, what does Saul do? Rally his people and head out into the fray? No. He calls the roll of the army. He calls the role of the army. He tries to find out who started the battle because whoever started this battle that is now, they're now winning is going to get the credit for the victory. So he's looking to find out, hey, who's going to get the credit for this? Then he attempts to invoke the Lord's favor on this battle by carrying a, a, a religious item, a talisman, into battle with him. Verse 18 of the chapter, it says, Saul told Ahijah, bring the ark of God. For it was with the Israelites at that time. While Saul spoke to the priest, while he's, he's, he's summoning the ark, the panic in the Philistine camp increased in its intensity. So Saul said to the priest, stop what you're doing. So now the word ark here has been variously translated through history as ark or ephod, right? And perhaps it's referencing the little carrier. There was a little pocket in the ephod to carry the, the, the Urim and the Thummim, which were the seeing stones of Israel, right? Or it may be actually referring to the ark of the covenant. But whatever it was... It's clear from his quickness to abandon it that Saul had pragmatic intentions for it, not devotional intentions. It seems as though Saul is trying to navigate the fact that he has been rejected by Yahweh. He is still attempting to ingratiate himself into the favor of his people's God here. So in the ancient Near East, sacrifice Worship of the gods was all about getting a, a favorable outcome from the gods. So you remember the story of Elijah. He goes up onto the, onto the Mount Carmel, and he's confronting these thousand priests of Baal. And as the thousand priests of Baal are trying to get, uh, to get Baal to respond, what are they doing? They're cutting themselves. They're cutting themselves open. They're offering their blood to Baal to try to get Baal to come and war against Yahweh. People would offer parts of their harvest. They would offer parts of their family 
to gods in order to get a favorable uh, harvest season or, or uh, in, in a, to have favor in a battle, right? Last week, Saul is offering a sacrifice before he goes into battle, but nowhere in the law was a sacrifice commanded before a battle. So what he's doing is he is offering the sacrifice to garner the Lord's favor. He has, Saul has taken this from the surrounding pagan cultures. And now he's practicing straight-up divination and relic worship with the whole Ark Ephod thing. And we know it is pragmatic we know it's not a devotion. It's not a heartfelt devotion. It's pragmatic because he's, the second he sees that the victory is near, he jettisons the religious artifact and the ritual, and he heads into the battle. What we see from Saul next is par for the course. The word goes out that the Philistines are losing. All those folks who started deserting in chapter 13, they suddenly find their courage and their will to fight. They rally around Saul and Jonathan, even the, the turncoats, they turncoat again, switch sides against the Philistines again as the Philistines start retreating. And the second half of verse 23 says, the battle extended beyond Beth, Beth Aven, and the men of Israel were worn out that day from slaying all the Philistines. That's not what it says. The men of Israel were worn out that day for Saul had placed the troops under an oath. The man who eats food before evening, before I have taken vengeance upon my enemies, is cursed. So none of the troops ate any food. Here Saul is doing another foolish religious thing. And it's a confounding thing for his soldiers. He adopts this weird position of public spirituality, and he mandates a fast. These soldiers who have been fighting all day on physically demanding terrain, he tells them, you cannot eat or you will be cursed. And that curse is death. So this becomes an even greater insult to the fatigue and the hunger of his soldiers as the Philistines retreat, they retreat through a forest and the Israelite soldiers start walking through this forest to discover that it's filled with honeycombs that are dripping honey off onto the ground. This is literally what was promised to them. A land flowing with milk and honey and because of an oath that Saul made, an oath, by the way, that God did not command or ask Saul to make, these soldiers cannot avail themselves of this blessed encouragement, this, this blessing that is literally dripping from the trees. And unlike Jonathan, Saul hasn't taken this rash step of faith, it's a step in faith, sorry. He's doing it for the not he's not doing it for the glory of God. He's doing it for his own glory, to take vengeance upon his enemies. After all, had these enemies stayed in their own country, he would not have been forced to make the sacrifice that ruined his fledgling kingship. 
it is starting to become clear why Jonathan did not tell his father about the raid initially. And what happens next reveals that Saul does not demand a high degree of respect from his son. So Jonathan wasn't there when Saul made the oath. Jonathan didn't hear him take the oath. So he goes right ahead and he eats the honey. And when one of the soldiers from the army lets him know that his father has done this thing, this is how he replies in verse 29. My father has brought trouble to the land. Just look at how I have renewed energy because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the troops had eaten freely today from the plunder they took from their enemies, then the slaughter of the Philistines would, be, would have been much greater. Jonathan is dunking on his father's decision here. And the text doesn't imply that he's wrong. Maybe he is wrong for doing so. Maybe that's a foolish thing. Maybe... He's messing around with the, the, what is it, the fifth commandment, fourth commandment, the honor your father and mother. I don't know, but it does seem a legitimate critique. And look, what happens next vindicates Jonathan's critique that Saul has brought trouble to the land and it would have been better for the troops to have eaten. In verse 31, it says, The Israelites struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash all the way to Ajalon. Since the Israelites were completely exhausted, they rushed to the plunder, took sheep, goats, cattle, and calves, slaughtered them on the ground, and ate meat with the blood still in it. This is a sin in Israel for which you would be cut off from your people. They are mad with hunger, and they, they eat meat with the blood still in it. Some reported to Saul, look, the troops are sinning against the Lord by eating meat with the blood still in it. And Saul said, you have been unfaithful. And now our jaws kind of drop from the hypocrisy of it all. Saul, who has never repented, who has never repented of his lawlessness, even when confronted by the prophet of God. Saul, who has been using artifacts of worship like good luck charms. Saul, who has been trying to manipulate the deity with quasi-religious acts as though Yahweh was just like any of the other ancient Near East demon gods. Saul is accusing these war-weary and famished soldiers. Famished because they obeyed Saul's stupid restrictions. He's accusing them of being unfaithful. Now Saul is concerned with faithful obedience to God's commands? No. And what happens next is even worse. After making a makeshift altar, he's trying to, he's trying to continue on and is, don't make Yahweh angry. After making a makeshift altar and getting all holier than thou about not sinning in their food preparation, you know how Saul prepares to consummate this banner day? By engaging in more unsuccessful divination and attempted murder. 
He gets the priest to inquire of God whether he should finish off the Philistines as if it wasn't already apparent that God had given the Philistines over to them. And unsurprisingly, God does not answer him. So what does he do? He accuses the people of sin. He accuses the people of sinning against his oath. He says, someone amongst you has broken this oath, and darn it, even if it is my own son, Jonathan, that person is going to pay the price. And when the casting of lots reveals that it is Jonathan, Jonathan courageously and unapologetically owns it and steps up to be prepared prepared to be killed. And in his pride and his legalistic arrogance, Saul is going to do the unthinkable. He is going to kill his own son, kill the one whom the Lord delivered Israel through that day. Now keep in mind, Jonathan's breaking of an oath was not a capital offense. In God's law, it did not require the death death penalty. It It required a simple trespass offering. And to our relief, before Saul kills him, the people intervene to deliver Jonathan. They cry out, must Jonathan die? He accomplished such a great deliverance for Israel. No, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he worked with God's help today. Now, because I am a politically minded guy, I enjoy political science, I was so tempted to turn this into a discussion about the people's role in restricting government (laughs) and where those fears, but if you want to talk about that, we can go have coffee and, and have a discussion. But Saul has been tooling around. Now that Saul has been tooling around with religion, what he's been doing could quite frankly be characterized as superstition or as divination because Saul is clearly a false believer. Saul is a false believer. And as 1 Samuel progresses, we will see his pagan divinations only end up increasing alongside his paranoia and madness. But this binding of people's lives and consciences to this idiotic, quasi-religious endeavor is a perfect example of what legalism is and what legalism does. The vain oath he took heaped up heavy burdens on his people and it wound up giving birth to more unrighteousness. Jesus condemns the Pharisees. He says, you you take this law that's meant for your good, you expand it out, you heap up all these heavy burdens on people, and then you don't lift a finger to help them carry it. You crush people under the weight of this and then judge them for their unrighteousness. And had the people of Israel not been fed up with Saul's rash oaths, oaths, oaths that both it amazingly fell short of and went past what God required, an innocent man, the king's own son, would have died. 
Listen, all paganism, all paganism, all divination, superstition, witchcraft, new age, idol worship, all paganism is just a form of arrogant legalism. It is all rooted in the assumption that I can figure out how to navigate whatever God or whatever power or whatever life force. I can navigate their requirements for this life in order to find their favor. And it gives birth to confusion and unbearable burdens, unrighteousness, and ultimately death. And although Saul is a major figure in the next 16 chapters of 1 Samuel, his royal epitaph is written here at the end of 1 Samuel 14, indicating that his kingdom has ended and he is from this point on a false king. So, how do we apply this today? How do we take this ancient story and apply it today? First, we need to be reminded the church of God needs your faith. The church of God needs your bold faith. I'm not saying it needs your faith because if we don't have it, it'll disappear. God is going to you know, successfully lead his church through, through all times and ages, but it needs your faith. This church needs your faith. Because our faith, though intensely personal, is not private. It is a gift from God for the edification of the church. And like every other gift that is given, though it comes from above, God gives it to us to use. Now, he doesn't give identically, identically to everyone, there are some people to whom God has given such a massive measure of faith that they are borderline sociopaths. Talk to my dad. Right? Things, stuff that would bother any other human on the face of the planet, it doesn't phase these folks. Because their portion of faith is larger than their portion of personal embarrassment or self-preservation. These are the Jonathans who charge out into the world because someone out there has never heard the glories of Christ proclaimed. And it doesn't matter what it costs them. This is Jim and, and Elizabeth Elliot, David Livingston, Eric Little, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon. And yet to others, he has given just enough. He's given just enough faith just enough that they cling desperately to Christ, even while the waves of trial and doubt are washing over them. The one who constantly seems to be crying out, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we need both of them. We need you. I need you. I need to see how to boldly go into my neighborhood and risk my reputation to see Christ exalted in the hearts of the unsaved. I also need to see how to keep clinging to Christ. 
even after you've been diagnosed with a catastrophic illness, even after you've lost a child or a spouse or gone bankrupt, I need to see how to do that. I need to see dead people raised to new life, which is why I cry every baptism Sunday, no matter how much I tell myself not to do it. It stirs something in us to see another person's faith. Jonathan's bold faith rallied the people to victory. Our faith is an encouragement to one another. Paul speaks about this in his desire to come to the Roman church. He says he wants to come so that they might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And think on this. Bold faith stirred something in the heart of God. Bold faith stirred something in the heart of God when he saw four friends tear the roof off of a house so that they could lower their crippled friend to him for healing. It moved something in the heart of God. So do not deprive the church of your witness of your faith. Don't deprive the church. Act on whatever your perhaps the Lord will is because if you're a believer, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Do not hide in your home when things are difficult. Do not forsake the gathering of believers. Come and teach me how to cling to Christ in the midst of difficulty. And if you're not a believer, he will by no means turn away the one who comes to him in faith. And the church needs that encouragement too. The second way that we apply this is you need to kill your legalism. You need to kill your legalism before it kills you. Brothers and sisters, if anything other than Christ is giving you assurance of your good standing before God today, that is legalism. And though it is giving you some measure of assurance today, it will morph and begin to bring forth unrighteousness, heaping up heavy burdens upon you and those close to you and begin working death in you. If you are thinking the good things, the good things you do, your church attendance, your giving, your parenting, your religious actions or devotion are somehow garnering favor, the favor of God, you are falling prey to the trap of legalism. God has only ever given his favor because of the works of one man. the Lord Jesus on the cross and in the life that he lived. And for the Christian, it's a hard line to walk because we are certainly saved to do good works. It says it in Ephesians, but so frequently, especially in seasons when the enemy seems to be prevailing, when the Lord's presence seems distant or his voice quiet, we can drift towards legalism.
equating our righteousness with how often we do our Bible study or how often we work out or how our kids are turning out. But listen, if the first thought after you have sinned is not, I must go to my father, you are being wooed by legalism. If your first thought is is not, I must go to the throne of mercy, you're being wooed by legalism. And that will confound you and those around you and it will start to bring about the stench of death in your life. And for the one who is here who does not know they're standing before the Lord, who has never called out upon Christ in faith, the one who is, who is either far from God or wondering about God, I can offer you no comfort. Your legalism will not save you. Your good works will not save you. I'm a pastor. I know the word of God. I love the word of God. And and that knowledge and that passion will only serve to condemn me on the day of judgment. Because I knew what was right and I did what was wrong. It It will serve alongside my wicked works to condemn me. The only hope that I can offer you, the only hope is that Christ has paid the highest price for you. He has paid your debt. He has given you a righteousness that you could never accrue for yourself. And the only way to receive that is not by, by mysticism. It's not by, by any, any form of superstition or legalism. It is with the empty hand of faith reaching out to God, believing he is who he says he is. So I urge you today, if you are there, Find your comfort in the fact that Christ has given himself for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, we praise you and we thank you. But we confess that we are prone. We are prone to our own good works, Lord. We confess that it's offensive to us to think that we are helpless to garner favor with you. But we rejoice that in Christ Jesus you have given us unmerited favor. And we thank you that nothing will separate us from that if we have put our faith in Christ. And I pray for the one who is here who is trusting in in dead works be they religious or secular. Pray for the one who is trusting in dead works. God, that you would enlighten their heart to the glory of Christ Jesus, that they would call upon him, and that you would rescue them today, we pray. Amen.